0: And death comes into the house. It's it, it is a it's a god, it's a deity, right? It has it has it enforces a kind of etiquette, a fundamental like spirit etiquette, you could say. It doesn't ask you to obey it; it simply asks you to allow its place in the proceedings. That means your understanding of love has to be so. Altered as to probably be unrecognizable to you.
1: That's Steven Jenkinson, today's guest. He's one of the most thoughtful, articulate people I think I've ever met. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation on levels I can't begin to describe, uh, I talk about this a little bit in, in the beginning of our conversation, but uh, this was recorded yesterday. Today's Monday, October 29th. This was recorded yesterday uh, morning. Yesterday afternoon was the memorial for my dad. And this was the only morning that uh, Stephen and I were going to be in the same place and and could put this together. So... It wasn't intentional that I met with one of the world's foremost experts in death and grieving and all that stuff on the day of my dad's memorial service, but that's the way it came together. And uh, there you go. The world works in funny ways sometimes. Um, so it was a very relevant conversation for me. And Stephen is, as you'll hear, in. Incredibly articulate and has a way of expressing thoughts that is unique and uh, resonates on multiple dimensions at the same time it's almost like whale songs or something it's it's amazing after the podcast ended I, I read him a poem that I've read on this podcast before Um, But I thought maybe I'd read it again here at the beginning because it's one of my favorite poems and um, it's been a while since I've abused you with poetry. So this is W.S. Merwin and the piece is called For the Anniversary of My Death, which is bringing attention to the fact that we celebrate our birthdays every damn year, but we don't celebrate our death days. And there's some asymmetry to that, which is telling um so merwin says every year without knowing it i have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star then i will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men, as today, writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing, not knowing to what. Every time I read that poem, and I've probably read it 50 times, um, I'm impressed, again, anew, by the way Merwin uh, like packages emptiness in a way. He, he, the whole point is we don't know the day, the calendar day on which we'll die. March 12th. Maybe it's March 12th. Maybe it's April 2nd. Maybe it's a new year's morning. Who knows? But the fact that we don't know is itself uh, a presence. Our ignorance is a thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that you can almost grasp, like when you hear the falling of the rain stop. When something that has been present so long that you stopped hearing it, Stops. Then you hear it in its absence, and we bow, not knowing to what. And the silence sets out, like the beam of a lightless star. That's some good fucking poetry right there, yo. All right. This is Stephen Jenkinson. His um, his website is Orphan Wisdom. dot com uh furthermore, the reason I'm releasing this right away is that he's on tour right now uh with the band and it's uh it's a whole to do and I wanted to give you a chance to to meet him in person and to uh to participate if possible so I'm releasing this right fresh out of the oven. They're going to be in Boulder, Colorado tomorrow, but that's sold out already. November 1st, they're going to be in Ithaca, New York. Great town. Love Ithaca. If you're listening to this from Ithaca or anywhere in the Finger Lakes region. Man, I spent a lot of good times there. I was up there in college. Had a good, my best buddy went to Cornell. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. Okay, November 2nd. They are going to be in where New York City, New York City, the Big Apple, November 6th. They're going to be in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, the 7th in Ypsilanti, the 10th in Minneapolis, the 12th in Ottawa, 4th of December in Toronto. I guess they're going to be there a few nights in Toronto. And then, uh, oh yeah, Toronto, two nights, 4th and 5th of December. So if you're in any of those towns... Uh, Go to OrphanWisdomSchool.com and uh, get your tickets. Check them out. Um, Stephen is an extraordinary person and well worth going out. I wish I could have gone to their event um, here in L.A. last night, but can't can't leave your dad's memorial service early. Even if you're going to hear someone talk about death, uh, it still wouldn't have worked. All right, let's listen to some of these intro snips. It's kind of weird, the order today, but I wanted to let you listen to him right away. So we'll do some intro snips, and then I'll be right back. Hey, Chris, this is Brian calling in from beautiful central Japan. I'm cycling through my favorite park right now on a lovely fall morning. Just calling in to say how much I love your show, and thanks for everything you do. And uh, yeah, one more thing, I agree totally with you, man. Ties suck. All right, thanks, bud.
2: Hey, Chris, this is Moses from Dallas, Texas. I'm a first year medical student. I just got out of cadaver lab where I dissected the palm of my patient's hand. I wanted to let you know that it's intellectually stimulating podcasts like yours that got me back in school and now have me on the road to becoming a doctor. So keep doing what you're doing, man. It's not just for entertainment. You can you know wake some people up. Peace and love, brother. Peace and love.
3: Hi, Chris, and all your listeners. Um, I am in Sweden at the moment. Um, My partner has just taken our 10-months-old baby boy out for a walk so I can set up the workbench out of the back of the bus that we've been living in for the last year and a half and make some furniture. And I really enjoy listening to your podcasts while doing that. So thank you for those I um, hope you have a great summer alright, bye
1: okay, that last one came in a while ago, hope you have a great summer, <laughs> that's a dead giveaway, uh, I got hundreds of these things and they're fantastic, I wish I could play more of them, but I figure three's kind of the limit <clears throat> um, but that's why it takes so long to, uh, to get through them, if you'd like to send one, I'm always happy to hear more uh, it might be years till I get to play it, but you can send them to uh, intro. What is it? Intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, and keep them under 20, 30 seconds if you can. Anyway, thank you to Brian Moses and Swedish bus women and 10 month old, now 13 or 14 or 15 month old, probably. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. Hope the furniture's coming out well, and the dissection's going well, and living in Japan's going well. Uh, okay, so Stephen Jenkinson, very interesting cat. I'm not going to talk much more because I want to get right into this. It's uh it's a deep and significant conversation. I just want to reiterate that if you would like to see him on tour. Um, he's, if he's coming anywhere near you, it's really worthwhile. There's, uh, there's some videos. Um, it's a very professionally put together thing that they're doing. It, It seems to be part theater, part monologue, part music. He's got a band, um, I think it's the Stephen Jenkinson. Oh, sorry, the Gregory Hoskins band. Yeah, Stephen Jenkinson's our guy. The tour is called Nights of Grief and Mystery. And hey, it's almost Halloween, so in some weird kitschy way, I guess, I guess this all makes sense somehow. All right, this is Stephen Jenkinson. I'm going to play a tune. Uh, down in the middle of the conversation. Might as well just tell you what it is now instead of interrupting the flow. It's a song called "Still Water," and it's by Daniel Lanois, who is one of my favorite musicians. He's also a great producer. Did uh, did the U two um, record uh, "Joshua Tree"? I think he also did Peter Gabriel. Um, so one of the greatest records ever red rain holy shit if you haven't heard that listen to that song it's all about a dream standing down at the water's edge in my dream yeah check it out all right thanks everybody you're beautiful love you and i will talk to you soon ladies and gentlemen i am in topanga canyon in my cluttered living room with steven jenkinson this is this is a conversation that has been in the works for probably over a year. I've been uh Elisa our mutual friend Elisa Esposito well before I met her had, was telling me you need to meet this guy Stephen, you need he's you know been so helpful and mm-hmm. um in her transition with her husband's death um you helped her very much and she's extremely grateful for that and So she's mentioned you many times. I've had listeners write to me um, telling me about your work and how important it is. And uh, I don't know if you realize this, but we've been negotiating this date and trying to figure out a time when you'd be in L.A. or I'd be wherever you were. You're moving around on tour a lot. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And um, we ended up... So this morning was the only day that could work. And interestingly... After you and I finish, I'm going to my father's memorial service. Ah. So I don't know if that's a convergence or a coincidence or what that is, but it's pretty interesting from my perspective. So thank you for being here.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
1: You've been doing different kinds of work. Um, I guess you're best known for your work around grieving and helping people transition through end of life. Is that fair to say? I
0: guess so. Yeah, I'm the death guy to a lot of people. Right. Yeah.
1: And how did, how did that start? How did you get into all this?
0: Uh, more than reluctantly. I didn't know there was such a business uh, or a specialty. And I had no hankering after, that's for sure. But there are people in this world who know you better than you. Mm. And if you're lucky, they're around from time to time. And they, um, they interfere with your... Uh, you know your cosmic omnipotence with your, about your own little deal, and uh, this woman just pushed me uh, to to join the hospital I, kn- I knew I was not a team guy in any sense of the term uh, or an organizational guy because i couldn 't not only take the stuff seriously but I really couldn 't respect it and that 's not a good recipe for getting along.
1: What stuff yeah. are you talking?
0: About? Well, the organizational mandates mm-hmm. you know the to submit to the to the group mind and right. and and to uh, you know consensus bill I mean, all the things that are supposed to be standard procedure you know to, to make it work but but if you have already decided that it doesn't work then trying to make it work mm. isn't part of the program you know but that was I knew that was me intuitively but I mean you don't you can, you shouldn't defend your inability to get along you know, it's, it's not something to be proud of, you know. I was aware of it, but at that point I was just probably prone enough uh, in my probably early 40s by then to, to not be so certain about it. Mm. And anyway, there's a similar kind of convergence that you were mentioning, and, and, and she just prevailed upon me over about 18 months that uh, I'd be good at this. And I finally agreed, I'll do a little thing. Uh, they had a group of men who were terrifying. That was the word that they used, terrifying the hospital staff because um, they had recently someone died or was dying at the time. And would I literally take them off their hands? That was the phrase that was used. And I said, well, why are they so terrifying to you? Um, most of the staff was female then, probably still now. and the And the woman said, well, you know, Half of them are belligerent and hostile and aggressive and, and, and all of that. I said, well, sure, that's unnerving. What about the other? Oh, they're much worse, she said, the other half. How so? I said, they don't say anything at all. That was the most terrifying because everybody's waiting, I guess, for some kind of detonation. Mm. So I, they gave me a list of names, that's all. And it was a cold call. And, you know, do you want to be in a group for men who've had somebody die on them or, or is dying and, and basically can't do it? and um all of them were in until they found out it was only men and they all opted out when they heard that detail Mm. and i wasn't ready for that i didn't i didn't hear that coming and by the third one though i'm you know as a former mental health professional in recovery now i uh (laughs) i'm you know i can recognize pattern let's just say yeah and um so the third guy said this is going to work out really well for you then for you to be in this group said, I just told you. I, I said, no, I heard you. But this is turning out to be a group for men who do not want to be in a group for men. <laughs> That's one of the things you're going to have tight. That's good branding. To, yes. I thought so. Yeah. But anyway, somehow I got seven, let's say seven or eight. Yeah. And uh, we didn't know what we were meeting to do. I I didn't know. You know, I'm not a therapy guy. I don't really believe the whole project of of therapy. But anyway, there we were. And in the third session, suddenly it became... A blisteringly clear what it was for. That these guys were exceptionally skilled at being angry. And I, I really don't say that with any irony. I mean it. They had a, a real ability in this regard. And if you've ever seen people who have no ability in that regard, that's when you'd be able to recognize it as a real. Those are chops, you know, and well performed and well learned. They're, it's enormously valuable to be angry, mm. to know how to have conflict without investing yourself conflictually in anything mm. to inhabit the moment, right? It's a transient moment, but it, deser- it belongs just as much as, as happiness belongs or contentment. Uh, it has its, its time and its, its consequence. So and they were very good at it, yeah. but it was in part to cover for what they were not good at. Okay. You know, it was also compensatory. Right. And the thing that it became clear in the third session is nobody was good at being sad. Huh. That was the key business. But nobody said that, of course, but it, it suddenly became apparent to me that that sadness was the thing to be advocated and to be learned mm. and to be um, respected and ultimately to be practiced. So they, they rechristened the thing sad school, they called it. And it was supposed to last six weeks. And it, at their adamant insistence, it lasted 18 months. And somewhere in that transition from a very abrupt in-and-out thing that I agreed to do, I became persuaded that in some fashion I was actually built and born for that
1: particular work. To help angry people be understand something. I'm not sure
0: that it was the anger thing. Yeah. I think it was... The capacity to nurture heartbrokenness uh-huh. and and to reimagine it not as a skill that you would prevail over but as a skill that you would be a proper servant to in those times, there was something in there that that laid a claim upon me that nothing else had done, and I recognized myself instantly once we got there mm. what a gift oh man it was it was um. Well, it was the second half of my life begun just then I mean, I, I think the second half will be shorter than the first half, but it's it 's way more articulate than the first half was, yeah so I was enormously lucky i didn 't know it existed. Yeah, I became the death guy as it 's happened, and within eighteen months of the day that i 'm describing to you, I was um, <laughs> I was in charge of all the non medical uh, services for the biggest palliative care. Uh, outfit in the country
2: of Canada yeah in a
0: very short period of time yeah and and then I was in the position of dictating to physicians what their non-medical practice should also include and that was a time-limited arrangement because no doctor and I understand why no doctor would take marching orders from somebody who's not a physician right and they wouldn't ultimately do it you know but the strange thing, if this is too much detail, you tell no, me. No, no, this is great. The strange thing was that um, it became apparent to me when I was in deep in the death trade, as I've called it, that the assumption was, and the physicians were leading the charge in this assumption, that they were not only skilled at all things um, medical, but they had an inherent in inalienable skill at the level of what they thought was basic human chops, which included... All the compassion notes, all the sense of what was necessary um, to bring to bear upon a dying person's life—they had all that too. with Bespoke absolutely defense. no training <laughs>
1: exactly. That's in it. what I was going to say. And when I began yeah. to point
0: this out, yeah. you know, it—you could hear the assumption crystal clearly, and it was, look, if you're if you're a biped and you're upright, you're capable of all that stuff, and then I got the medical thing on top of it, mm-hmm. so. I'm doubling down all the time, yeah. but you don't have the medical thing. So I have everything you have plus that expertise. Right. And when I began to challenge that assumption, that's when the gravel was introduced to the machinery. And you knew mm-hmm. uh, up until then, I was the beneficiary of benign administrative neglect. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a gorgeous arrangement, you know, and, uh, yeah. And a certain notoriety began to gather around that, that time, because if you're, if you can be lucid, it, it's almost secondary what you're saying because there's so much relief in the marketplace mm. that, that, that you can sustain a line of inquiry mm. about what you're doing. So I would routinely ask in, in professional conferences and so on, what is it that you think that we're doing? And they would not tolerate that because it, was, um, it slowed down the momentum too much. And that's a momentum-driven proposition, the care of dying people, because it's, it's innovation Driven, you see, because it's a it derives from the medical technology field. Mm. So obviously, I'm an outsider times 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 by that point. And um, when I started to point out the fact that it was clear that physicians were defending people's right to die badly, that that would, they were invested in that, though they wouldn't have articulated it quite that way, but it was very apparent that the the real god of the arrangement was. Um, Uh, you know, personal authority and clarity of decision making and utter, utter and unvanquished autonomy. Well, the irony is that when you're a dying person, you don't have any of that. And the challenge to you is to lay it down with more or less grace, sometimes with no grace at all. But that's what the dying asks of you. Whereas you're surrounded by lunatic cheerleaders who are all about maximizing your pre-morbid orientation to life. Well, that's like you being pregnant and everyone around you advocating your right to smoke and to drink alcohol and so on yeah. because that's the way it was before the onset of this madness. It's right. changing your body from within. And, you know, people listening to this might find that a very, very cavalier parallel. But I'm here to tell you, I saw it. And it's an absolutely faithful parallel to draw. So... Uh I was, um, I was awash in, in a kind of indignation that couldn't find its feet finally. And it was not easy for me to realize that I was working myself out of a job by wondering what we were doing aloud. I thought it was a fundamental responsibility, partly as a professional person, partly because you were paid to be there, but mostly because uh, if you're granted a mind... And you don't employ it in crunch time it's it's not um a leisure activity wondering about these things especially in the really inconvenient times i think it was a i realize now it's a moral responsibility it's a it's an act of fundamental citizenship you know to it's not about holding people accountable i don't even like the language you know, it's way too much pompous posturing to Mm. use that's not what i mean i simply mean that you ask yourself what do you owe a fellow human being when one of you is heading out of town and and it's not your idea and real candor seems to be up there Mm. in the in the short list you know but not support not unconditional support Mm. and this is what threw everyone because you want to be seen by a dying person to be helpful Who doesn't? But what does helpful mean? Well, ultimately it means collusion. So if the dying person has decided they're not a dying person, how do you support that particular dying person? And it's a a Kafka nightmare. Yeah. If you back yourself into the idea that the only legitimate occupation you can have is to be well thought
1: of Mm. by the person you're proposing to serve. Unconditional support. Doesn't that circle around to what you said earlier about and it was beautifully put and I hadn't thought of it before, but that some people know you better than you know yourself and if you're lucky they come into your life at an important moment. In a way, is that a role that you're trying to fulfill?
0: Um I wouldn't say that I would know them. No, as the, people maybe the situation. Certainly I know dying. Yeah. You know. I, I had to create a children's program from scratch for kids who are dying. Mm. And for the, and that's what I called it. I called it a so-and-so um, Center for Children's Grief and Palliative Care. I called it in that order to establish what the priority was. That our first responsibility was to, to grief, not to the amelioration of symptoms. Right. And grief is not a symptom. The grief
1: is a skillfulness. And grief begins far before the...
0: Not necessarily. Uh I mean, you'd hope that that's the case. But Uh if if grief were an inevitably occurring thing, you would not need grief counselors, would you? You wouldn't. Mm. Why? Because it arises in a moment that pleads for grief. Mm. In other words, it seems reflexive and involuntary and, quote, naturally occurring. But it's none of those things. There are circumstances in this life of ours that are crafted, obviously... For, uh, for grief. And easily it can be nowhere to be found. Easily. And I could tell you this. The repertoire, this is going to sound a little um, opinionated. But, <laughs> but it's, for what it's worth, I saw it. Okay? Yeah. And it goes like this. Let's imagine there's a hundred ways of dying. Now, I don't think there are. I don't mean physiologically. I mean the way by which you come to it. Let's say there's a hundred ways of dying sanely, or wisely, or well. And my better days, I'd be inclined to grant the notion that there's a hundred, but I never saw them. I saw four or five. So what was the rest of the time caught up in? I saw the 10,000 ways of not dying while you're dying. And that's the that's the most pithy way I can give you a feel for it. That most people occupied their entire end of life time in strategies for not dying,
1: not dying psychologically. So in,
0: in in every way you can imagine. Denial. It's not really denial, you know. It's um, it's much more creative than that. And this is the I say this with great dismay that that's where the human creativity went. To how to not die while you're dying because apparently not dying while you're doing so is an absolutely legitimate undertaking in a culture that rewards self-determination before it rewards sanity Mm. or emotional or psychological authenticity it awards it awards autonomy before it awards responsibility you know but if you think about what the word responsibility means, it literally means the capacity to respond, right? So, so dying is a time for being wrecked on schedule. There is a schedule. It's not your schedule. You don't get a vote. Or I could say your only vote is to, to have some regard for the schedule or to view it as another interruption in your lifestyle choice parade, which and, and it's the second one that prevailed, you see. Mm. And, and it turned out my entire job security came from the lunacy of the culture. It didn't come from dying. Right. It came from the
1: craze. Right. Yeah. You mentioned brokenheartedness earlier. Yeah. Um, and and being a guide to broken heartedness or, or helping people to acknowledge it. No, and, no a little stronger. I had to sell it. To sell it, to actually get people to see it and. Oblige
0: them. No, no, beyond seeing it. I had to oblige people to brokenheartedness. Hmm. Not describe it. More than advocate for it. I had, and this is, I know this is strong language, I had to insist upon it. Right. You know? Because there's so much resistance. Well, most of the resistance is uh, of the passive variety. So that, so it's hard to recognize hmm. as refusing to be heartbroken. Look, the solution to heartbrokenness in a culture that champions autonomy and competence is less heart and so less brokenness. Hmm.
1: That's the recipe. Damn, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I see what you're see? saying. So yeah. what am I
0: advocating? Yeah. I'm advocating heartbrokenness... A little story might, might suffice here. So <clears throat> the woman is 28 years old. She's never going to see 29. She's stage 3 breast cancer, Mets to the lungs. She's nasal prongs 23 hours a day. I'm meeting her for the first time. Her mother's sitting beside her. I say to her, what's your understanding of what's happening? She says, I'm, I'm seriously ill, which is an utter misnomer for what was going on there. I've been seriously ill. Maybe you have too. And here we are sitting across from each other talking. And we didn't die. But this woman's dying. That's not what seriously ill is. But anyway, it's already begun, you see? The, the, the language that sounds like it's realistic and, and, and imbued with candor right. is actually palming. Right. You see, it's palming the heavy stuff away. And it's allowing um, the, the allegation of a, a realistic expectation. I'm seriously ill. But there's no mention of dying, you see. There's no mention of ending. There's no mention that I, that's where I'm actually sitting in the midst of speaking to you. And that's the only reason you've come to talk to me. Right. All of which was true, but it doesn't appear. And she says, But really, I don't let that be a big part of my life. This is jaw dropping mm. moment. This is not somebody who's senile, right? You don't have any neurological aspect. the disease what you have is a cultural aspect and the culture trumps excuse the language the capacity of the the neurons to faithfully register things and come out your mouth as as understandable stuff yeah i don't let my dying be a big part of my life and she was surrounded by people that aided and abetted that including people inside the trade Because on the surface of it, what does it sound like? She's doing great. If you had a checklist for you know, realistic adaptation to her life circumstance, you'd be checking five out of five all the way down the list. And then she turned to her mother, and the mother gave her the literally did that thumbs up gesture (laughs) and looked at me and she said, "That's my girl." Oh yeah, Yeah. See, well, when you when you take the circumstance and you isolate it from What we can easily recognize is people's attempt to love each other. That's what they're trying to do. Right. And then you let in the distinct possibility that this is not what love is anymore. Oh, you're in, you're in rocky ground now, you see, Mm. because that's what I am saying. Yeah. That that's not maternal love. It's understandable. But what you have is a circumstance where people have decided the best way to love each other is to collude with the notion that nothing fundamental has changed. Yeah. But when death comes into the house it's it, it is a, it's it 's a god it 's a deity right it has it has it enforces a kind of etiquette, a fundamental like spirit etiquette you could say it doesn 't ask you to obey it it simply asks you to allow its place in the proceedings that means your understanding of love has to be so altered as to probably be unrecognizable to you. And speaking as a father now with kids in their early 30s, I'm not saying this is easy. But I'm, but I'm saying it's, it's a moral responsibility. If you've brought somebody into the world and the way it works is that they're dying first, mm. then you have to ask yourself, what does love look like now? Because you can't defend the child as you would have ordinarily have done. So your entire repertoire is not from this. It's from the pre-morbid time. And the repertoire doesn't work now. And if you love your kid the way you say you do, you have to let your understanding of love be as broken down as your child's health is. And somewhere in there, you have the capacity to reimagine what love is. Is to see down what you care about. And to serve the endings of what you hold dear. It's the most
1: counterintuitive thing on the surface. Exactly. I was sure. going to say that as a parent, y- y- you imagine, or I, I'm not a parent, but I imagine your first instinct would be to stay strong yeah. for your child when in fact what you're advocating here is an acknowledgement and acceptance of one's own brokenness in the face of this experience. Yeah. No, I'm not advocating acceptance at all. No. No.
0: It might sound like it, but, but you have no... Okay, routinely, this is what's said to me in interviews. So you've seen a lot of death, I have. And so you've seen your own death. Oh, yeah. And so it's, a, it's more than occupational hazard. It's your companion. That's all true. So you must be okay with it then. That's the next line they go to every time. Mm. That chronic exposure to, to things that literally undo you make you okay with being undone. In other words, acceptance. So I'm here to tell you, I have no obligation to be okay with dying. And that might sound strange given everything I've just said. But I've not, you know, for that woman who was dying at 28, I'm not saying anything about okay or rolling over or or saying yes or being the old high five to the Grim Reaper. Any of that stuff. I'm saying I have found as a result of seeing my own death life to be extraordinarily habit forming now in a way it never was before I glimpsed it. I got an, an insane degree of education about this in a very short period of time because I equated loving being with al- alive with things working out, that that's where it comes from. Mm. And, it, and it occurred to me, Unfortunately, I was old enough to take it on. I had a little ballast of life experience. I didn't tip over, but I easily could have, I think. To, to realize that the ability to see the end of what you hold dear turns out to be the mothership for being able to hold something dear. Because until then, it's very conditional. It's working out, yeah. They're staying with you, yeah. Um, you're on the upside of it, yeah. Okay, so, so now you can say yes. What about the rest of the time? Because the, the bigger yes to life comes with the end, comes with all the endings. And that's what I was lucky enough to glimpse. And here on the, on the practitioner end of that yes, which is what you're hearing now, my obligation to myself and to all the people who died on my watch is to, I don't have to want to die when it's my turn. You know, Mm. I I think um, as I'm imagining it now, um, I would be in deep disagreement at some point. I'm I'm sure I would, because the possibilities that have come to me about being alive are so uh, bordering on the rapture sometimes that the prospect of just laying that down because you get a diagnosis, I doubt it. I think I'm going to be non-compliant in that matter, you know. (laughs) But of course somewhere in there, yeah. your non compliance is predicated on what? That you know that you're in short strokes
1: time now. Right. That's where it comes from. Well that's what I mean by acceptance, not surrender. Yeah. But acknowledgement of of the situation. Yeah, grudging. Grudging. I, I would get grudging back in there. You know. Well, just like you know, when I asked about the brokenheartedness, what I was thinking is do you also work with people who are experiencing the death of a marriage or the end of a career or you know maybe a an auto accident that ends their ability to go running in the mountains as they've done every day for the last yeah. 30 years because yeah. those are all deaths as well and also i mean i'm you know Kubler ross talked about the five stages of grief applying to many different things do you feel that is there a universality sort of or is this very specific to end of life for you
0: well you know all your culture uh, your questions have a cultural um underlay to them right and so different places i mean these questions wouldn't even apply people wouldn't even know what you're talking about in other places and and we universalize to our considerable peril i think in this regard across all humanity and i i tend to reserve the word death for the kind we've been talking about so far Mm. and i think i think you lose a lot of the the ring uh, and the thrum and the consequence of the word when you start to, um, let's say, evenly distribute it across all endings and limits. And maybe we could use the word uh, endings and limits to categorize ones that are not fatal, you know, that and and reserve the word death for the recognizable mm. one that's meta- has a metabolic component to it. But I'm not diminishing... The utter undoingness of all the things you mentioned.
1: Because when you mention, we've, but they're pra- sorry, yeah, to, but
0: but those are practice. Those yeah. are the practice rounds, right? That's where you get mm. good at what, at not letting it get to you. No, that's where you get good at letting it get to you. Right, right. Because if you're not the boss, you can you have a chance to die well. But man, you got There's so much to lay down in a culture. This is the ba- this is the back story again in a culture that rewards you for competence, you're not gonna do well if you don't challenge the fundamental take on life that you've been rewarded for maintaining, mm-hmm. you see? So all of the endings before, quote unquote, the big one, those are, those are practice rounds, if you will. They're, mm. they're, you, can, you can get a glimpse of what, the, what finality's all about and that what does it mean when you don't get a vote? It doesn't mean that things aren't working out. It means that the illusion that you get a vote is one of your adversaries now. And you have to contend with that one. And it's best that you try to do it when your time of relative physical capacity is still with you. Practice it then. Do you know how much pushback there is at advocating that thing? You can't imagine how many times dying people would say to me, this is not the time for you to get me to talk about my dying. (laughs) Why not? because i'm still upright (laughs) like it's premature yeah you know wait you were conceived right yeah you drew breath right and you didn't stop right when you were born okay so it's not premature that we've established now that your dying is in the works so what does premature mean it means you don't want it it doesn't mean it's not in it's not in keeping with the way things are They'd made a film about me in in Canada called Grief Walker. And um, we showed it one time, and this uh, psychotherapist in the house kind of really jumped up and got right up on me there. And he said, uh, what gives you the right to be so direct with people who are dying? And if you listen carefully to what he's really evoking there, he believes he's occupying the moral high ground, Mm -hmm. which is what? Indirectness. Right. Let's just be as kind as we can be and call it indirectness. Because in a culture that does not believe in limits that you don't choose, then no one has the obligation to befriend one's limits and endings. They're all enemies and not one of them is your companion or your compatriot, you know? So I said to him in response, Well, what gives you the right to be so indirect with people who are dying then, since we're talking about rights, and since you brought it up, and what makes you think that the failure to be candid with people who are dying constitutes compassion? As you believe you own compassion, I can tell from your question that you think I have none, and that you have it all, and that that indirectness in a time that pleads for candor, and and the patient corroborates this in you, that you have a cabal of two, and and you've already decided that this is your moral obligation to a fellow human being who's going to die before you do, that you corroborate and you collude with them until they're ready for this precious candor of yours, rather than you occupying the position of deciding that you have an obligation to ready them without waiting for them to be ready. I mean, how much work do you want a dying person to do before you decide that they're worthy of your instincts for authenticity? It's, it's an insane degree of expectation.
1: What would you say if his response was, I think people are better off dying unprepared. I think people who you know, just overdose on heroin and never even know they're dying, what's wrong with that?
0: Well, I first ask him, how many dying people have you been with that constitutes this quorum that you're drawing from to ask such a thing? But it doesn't come from there any more than your question does. This question comes from the idea that that there's no inherent merit to being alert Mm. to your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Because the consequences of being alert are so uh, destroying in the short term. They're so disheveling. I'm not quibbling with whether they are. They they are. We're in agreement there. Do I think there's merit in being disheveled? Yes. Why? Because you're a grown-up. That's why. Mm. And grown-up behavior includes being wrecked and the ability to be wrecked. And it's somewhere in there. Cultivate the willingness to know that the world and its ways are bigger than the stuff that works out for you personally because the more you personalize the stuff we're talking about, the less, the less profundity there is available to you because it all comes back to how's it working for me. But you see, your death is not your death. It's a misnomer. Your death is lent to you. It's entrusted to you in the same way that your life is entrusted to you. And the, the measure by which I figure that comes to this. The ways by which you die and the ways by which you refuse to die, yes. They all have consequences, you'd agree, yes. They have consequences that ebb out way beyond your feelings about yourself, don't they? Massively so. When you die, will you have to live with any of the consequences that you've put into motion Mm. by virtue of how you died and how you didn't? And as far as I can tell, on this side of the veil, Mm -hmm. the answer is not likely. So who's going to live out all the consequences for your choices, Mm -hmm. the ones that you made? Everybody but you. Have you lived accordingly then? Mm -hmm. And have you chosen accordingly? I know it's a lot messier to let that part in, but really, are we fundamentally cultural beings? Are, Are we atoms that accidentally bump into each other from time to time? And that's when the... The the nagging nuance of the other person Mm. becomes something you have to contend with. Right. See what I'm saying? I do.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking that the way you're describing, it it sounded like death was... uh, uh, Experiencing death consciously, the way you're advocating, sounded like a, I don't know, a step toward maturity. And I was thinking, well, who cares? If you're dead, why would you want to attain this higher level of maturity? Right. But then you explain it's for everyone else, which actually is the essence of maturity in a way is seeing yourself within the context of others, I guess. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I had a friend in college, um, a close friend. We were hanging out at his apartment one night, me, him, and one other guy, um, getting high, listening to parliament, funkadelic and the phone rang. He went and answered the phone Talk for 10 minutes or something, came back, sat down, hit the bong again, opened some beers, played another record. And at some point, half an hour later, um, we were talking about what we were, we were planning to go camping that weekend. And my, this other guy said, yeah, so whose tents are we going to take? Who's going to drive? Whatever. And Mike, the guy who'd answered the phone, said, oh, yeah, guys, I can't go this weekend. Um, I said, Whoa, what? why? What's up? He said, oh, that that was my dad who called earlier. My mom uh, fell down the stairs and died. What? Yeah, yeah, my mom died, so I have to go drive home. We're going to have a funeral. uh, Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, man. Do you want another beer? And so we, no one knew what to do, what to say, and we just took a cue from him and rolled on rolled on and then later obviously we talked to each other and i was he and i were going to hitchhike to alaska that summer together so i was going to be with him a long time and you know every day every night and we talked about it we said he's going to crack at some point that bubble's going to burst never did never did and i've wondered about that the rest of my life Mm -hmm. was he in denial or was he just so accepting of the vicissitudes of life that that didn't rock his world or was he just so private what do you what do you make of that if if you can from this Uh, distance
0: yeah it's from a long way and with all respect to him which which one should have you know yeah um because i'm not dictating etiquette here you know we're wondering about things you and i Mm -hmm. and these things ultimately are confounding they're not something you can establish authority over never mind command yeah i mean you know he would be rather well thought of up to a certain point in responding that way and then one would hope for a private detonation right i'm not hoping for it but i would say that's part of the code and then private detonation is part of the expectation and then a proper working through of whatever whatever in his relationship with his mom and that whole thing and then some kind of re- revival of his quote normal life as if normal life is the god to be served mm. okay yeah. so so here's the news when somebody dies your life as you knew it dies too right and that's the thing that outrages north americans because why should somebody else's death have such a uncontainable consequence in my life that my life no longer resembles itself and I don't get a vote but you never did though you see all your votes were at at the at the edge of exercising a kind of censorship about what means and what doesn't mean and what comes close do you know how many people in their 50s have said to me all this talk about dying, yeah. Well, it's really strange to me, and it's a kind of an outsider language for me. Do you know why? Why? Because no one close to me has ever died. And I'm thinking to myself, do you have any idea what confession that is? You think you're speaking with a kind of demographic accuracy that that death has left you alone for the time being. What you've said to us is that you haven't been close enough to anyone to have their demise detonate your days. Mm. I wouldn't be bragging on that. I'd be wondering how I've lived into my 50s more or less inured to the damage upon others and how it could be for me, Mm. you know, and and what kind of news could be coming in over the razor wire of my privacy for me. Mm. Yeah. I don't know, you know, when you live in a culture that's a pseudo-culture that doesn't believe fundamentally that we is draws down much more heavily than i mm. ever could without that everyone's death before your own is a place for you to exercise choice my contention is everybody's death before your own is your, is a phd waiting for you to en, to enroll right and to be and to learn the graces of undoing. Because the first half of your life, the reward system is insanely in the other direction. I mean, we can, you know, if my compassion gland was in full operation right now, I'd be saying, man, this is impossible. You know, it's just too much to ask that somewhere in the middle third of your deal that you just absolutely reverse course. And you start saying, you know, winning is losing. You know, if you if you win in the in the bizarre marketplace of of, of efficiency or self sufficiency, you lose in every other place. How to reverse that? Well, that's why I drove all the way up the canyon to talk to you. I guess because without without the some kind of deep advocacy for what can't be defeated. Defeat cannot be defeated, you see. I think it was uh, Rilke who observed that humans aren't here to prevail and to win, but we're here to be defeated by ever greater things. And it's what defeats you that constitutes your, your real chops. Yeah. It's not not being defeated, right. you see. And death is, you'd grant, is right up there in the pantheon of yeah. limits, right? And and that's the tutorial that's available. And you live your life in the presence of other people's deaths. How? As if your death is in the future? But your death isn't in the future. Your death is not what will happen. Your death is happening now. How you live with it, or you choose not to live with it, is determining your death. It's your present companion. It's not a future reality. The only time it becomes that is when you decide that you are only talking about the metabolic demise of the last X Mm. hours or something like that. But there's no death happening by then. All of the dying has happened before then.
1: That's it. The day you die is actually the day you stop dying.
0: Yeah, it's the finally
1: your dying dies too. Yeah, yeah. Will you be, well, not you, uh, <laughs> there won't be a you, I'm, w- in, in theory, yeah. would you be disappointed if you died in a sudden car crash or had a heart attack while you were sleeping? Mm-hmm. Would you like the opportunity to live your death? But I have had it. Yeah. But I, you, no know I mean. you know I, what I mean. I know what you mean, but I've got to subvert the question a little the, bit. The, the, uh, the final chapter
0: of your death. But this is, I might be in it. Mm. You know, that's not a leap. Sure, sure. Then sudden death is an allegation. It's, it's, there's nothing true about the phrase sudden death. Why not? Because you can know about it now. Yeah, but I can't know the day or the time. But that won't change anything. You can still know the thatness of it. That's still there for you right now,
1: but it's it's uh, optional. A lot of people well, aren't what is th- that knowing that the knowing. Oh of sure, it. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, listen, yeah. all wisdom is optional.
1: Yeah, <laughs> this podcast. That's by the wise way, too, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every episode of this podcast ends with a song by a friend of mine named Carsey Blanton. Uh, the lyrics of which are, um, "I don't want to give the end away, but you're going to die one day." Yeah. Everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. It's, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. This is a recurring theme in this podcast, not wow. just in this episode. Right. It's it, not just me,
2: you're saying. It's not <laughs> just you,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, I try to bring an acceptance and an awareness of yeah. mort- mortality to every episode in one way or another. Yeah. Well, if you're doing your job really well, nobody's going to have a sudden death who's ever listened to you. <laughs> but I, I understand what you're saying, but don't you feel that, receiving the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer would be an experience unlike any other oh surely yeah surely look
0: don't mistake for what i'm saying what i'm saying for a program of readiness where readiness confers Mm. some kind of insurance against devastation devastation is part of the deal, yeah. f- as near as I can tell. So there's nothing, and you hear me saying that if you just get this right, you'll be fine. Anyway, mysteriously, right. anyway, right. and we're always back to the same solution, right? Yeah. But dying's not a solution. Uh, excuse me, is not a problem to solve. Right. Any more than if we get to eat later on today, you don't sit there at the table and go, "Shit, here we go again." Now what am I going to do? <laughs> Another meal to figure out, you know. So so that's that's what you yeah. hear me saying here and hopefully more than a few ways that that you're dying is it's obviously an invitation to inhabit your life to the depths and the fullness but it's not your life you see so it's not a recipe for being a spectacular north american Mm -hmm. it's it's an obligation to inhabit your citizenship seems i don't mean political citizenship i mean human citizenship you know where we understand that our life is lived in these concentric ebbs of consequence called other people. And if we could only begin to proceed just at this level of re-understanding this thing that we erroneously call our death as something that is, it's like the world, you know. It's like the physical planet. It's, it's entrusted to us. And man, whose idea was that? As you start to look around at the consequence of the trust, and then some part, maybe, maybe like me, some part of you rises up from time to time and says, "Man, I would like the big deal just to smite some of the bad guys, you know, just to, just to bring this shit down to its a, to a, a kind of livable or something like this." And why doesn't it do it? Why doesn't the wilderness defend itself? And the, my answer is because it wouldn't be the wilderness if it did, and the wilderness doesn't win. The way we imagine it winning mm. by smiting its foes. Mm. The wilderness fundamentally will, quote, win, it's not the right word, but will win by expiring wildly, okay? So that it's wildly gone. And I know that's not a recipe that satisfies anyone, but that would be the wilderness not giving up on itself in the last hour. Mm-hmm. And we could take a note from that and ask about our humanness which is the thing i'm wondering about all the time here we have a word human we have word humane what's the difference between these two things besides the e at the end one of the things i've come up with there is you know we talk about human in north america as it's an inalienable constant you simply can't lose it it can't even be corrupted apparently you don't have to do anything to gain it you certainly don't have anything to, do to maintain it. You have no obligation to it. It all flows in the other direction, this kind of thing. If all of that is true, why do we have the word humane as an adjective? You know why. Because in the realm of human behavior, we have to articulate behavior that's consistent with being human and some crazy shit that doesn't seem to be. Mm. And we use the word humane as the threshold to distinguish the two of them. Yeah. Okay. So dying well is human to me and when we exercise the notion that it's humane treatment to to limit one's obligation to one's death for example through euthanasia and we call that humane we're imagining that that's the extension of being human into the realm of the place that annihilates our humanity and my deep contention with that is to say no your dying is where your humanity is at most demonstrable range and pitch and if you bail on your humanity at the time of your dying be not surprised that your heirs come to their dying time as if it's something that steals their humanity from them and the only exercise of humanity left to them is to try to prevail against what seems to demean it called dignity and you know, who wipes who in the bathroom? Well, it's no surprise that in a culture that places insane uh, symbolic significance on toilet training, when you're incontinent at the end of your life, your dignity is attached to your incontinence, not to your capacity to be human. But maybe being human at a time like that is, and I'm not looking forward to it myself, by the way, but the notion that you can't be in the bathroom by yourself might not be the worst thing that could ever happen to you, you know? But if you're an an addict to autonomy, it could sure sound like
1: it. Mm. So are you, if I understand you correctly, I just want to be sure, are you saying there is no application of euthanasia or suicide with which you would agree? My agreement's absolutely irrelevant, Mm -hmm. frankly. My
0: opinions on these matters... They're relevant too. And mostly what you're hearing from me today is just what I saw. you know. I, that, that exposure, that much human suffering can either turn you into a bag of opinions or it can take all your opinions and use them for kindling, which <laughs> seems to be the case for me, the second one. So, um, so yeah. on, the, on the issue of euthanasia, which in my country, in Canada, is just now establishing provincial laws, and they'll all go with it. There's no question. So, euthanasia is a problem-solving device. That's why, that's why it's around. That's why people are coming to it. What problem is it solving? As, as evenly as I can say it, it seems to be solving the problem of dying. Not suffering. Dying. Let me make the distinction. In a culture that believes that all the endings you should have some say in, Any ending where you don't have say is inherently suffering engendering. So where does the suffering come from now? Does it come from dying? Or does it come from dying in a cultural milieu that forbids limits of all kinds until you're defeated by them? I think it's the second. So we have decided that that dying is inherently a suffering-making beast. And if we can do something about the suffering, i.e. euthanasia, then it's humane to do so. I understand the the sequence. So here's my wondering. Are we absolutely convinced that suffering comes from dying? Or are we willing to realize that this culture has gone so off the rails in this matter that the real origin of suffering when it comes to dying is knowing that you're dying? It's the knowing. This is why there's so much debate inside families about whether dad should be told. Mm like what good what good does it i'm you you said it earlier what good does it do to know well i'm i don't think good is the right standard to apply what will you do with knowing might be a better question to ask and if and if you exercise your right not to know what have you done to the people around you you literally condemn them to an understanding of dying when it's their turn that includes the fact that it's absolutely undoable to die consciously and more or less alertly. It's it's virtually undoable because it's the knowing that will bring you low, you see? So euthanasia strikes mm. me as an exercise in killing dying.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So why are you using two different verbs there? Well, because very simply... Uh, The English language tells you that dying is an active verb. You can't use the verb to die in the English language in a passive form. There's no way to properly to do it. So inside the syntax of the language, and syntax is where the language really lives, the English language at least is whispering this, dying is what you do, it's not what happens to you. Cancer happens to you, accidents happens to you, yes. But dying can only be expressed in terms of what you do or what you don't do, or what you refuse to do, or what you fail to do. What is euthanasia? It is not dying. It is doing something to dying. And we have a different word for it. Killing. And I know it's, there's a lot of freight on that word that dying doesn't have. Mm-hmm. I understand. What I'm trying to do by, by choosing a different word to describe it is to say, it moves in a different direction, euthanasia does. Euthanasia solves the problem of protracted dying. Euthanasia is sudden death for sudden death advocates. For people for whom who believe that death is inherently no, excuse not inherently, that death can be and preferably would be sudden. And why is the the architecture of sudden so compelling for so many people? Because they don't have to do anything because there's no work involved and in particular there's no suffering involved why because you don't know
1: but you do know but let me push back a little bit here Um, first of all there can be great suffering involved because euthanasia can be sorry suffering involved in what the 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 in the process of dying of dying oh surely yeah so there can be a lot of suffering that and is happens before they pull the trigger so to speak truly Um, and when you said uh, earlier you said that when someone uh, chooses that particular response to their demise that they condemn their heirs and, and others to when their moment comes to To be terrified and, and to feel that that that's the way um, you know, I was thinking, well, people choose different ways of facing different moments in their lives, and it doesn't necessarily condemn their heirs to face those moments in the same way. No, you know, are maybe my parents divorced when I was a kid and <laughs> over the fact that my mother had an affair and then I find out my wife had an affair. Right. I may choose a totally different response to that.
0: Yeah,
1: I personally and, and I don't like you. I, I have I hope the requisite humility to, to acknowledge that I have no fucking idea how I'll deal with my final days but one of the things i've fantasized about repeatedly is if i'm lucky enough to see it coming to have that diagnosis one of the things that i imagine that i actually think i would like to do that i would feel empowered by would be to go off alone and die on my own terms at the moment I choose and in the way I choose, I feel there's some dignity in an animal crawling off into the woods and dying alone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've talked a lot about our culture and I certainly agree with you. I just finished writing a book called civilized to death. And there's a big section of that about the death industrial complex and how, uh, we don't actually live longer than hunter-gatherers. We just die more slowly. and A lot longer. Yeah. We die a lot longer. Yeah, we die longer. Yeah. And, and as you've pointed out several times, even when we're alive, if we're alive in an ignorance of death, that's only partially alive. Um, but I, I looked at how uh, hunter-gatherers face death. And there's a lot of euthanasia involved. Um, And where there isn't, there's a lot of suicide involved. Do you feel we're doing it wrong in North America now? Are there cultures that you're aware of that do it right or better? What changes would you make in the culture to improve the situation?
0: Well, thankfully, I'm not in charge and (laughs) nobody would permit that obviously yeah but you yeah. hear me speaking from the point of view of imagining an alternative i mean i've been doing it for as long as we've been speaking now um when it comes to the point where somebody with a microphone is beginning to dictate uh how people should be about it that's more of the same yeah and that's not what i'm doing you know sure. i think you can wonder responsibly without prescribing mm-hmm. right yeah and no, because because the, fail- the insistence on prescribing is a deeply disrespectful uh, proposition. It's not easy to respect um, what prevails today, and I'm not sh- I don't think I do. Mm. And how I can find a way to respect people without respecting the culture from which they draw much of their repertoire is a very tricky business. Yeah. you know and I, mm. I do my best with it, you know. Uh, and any given day, maybe I can pull it off, but those are the good days. And sometimes the, the degree of despair that's enforced by the culture, as I experience it, is so is so palpable. I'm not sure I want to occupy the position in front of one more microphone ever again. You know, it's just what for? No, not answers. what for from personal yeah. futility point of view. Yeah. But I'm I'm you know I'm trying to live out my obligations. You know, and I'm trying to translate as best as I can. So let me go back to the thing you said, you pointed out earlier, and it's a good thing to have pointed out. There's there's no obligation to inherit wholus, bolus, as they say, all the examples that preceded your own and and that's your new straitjacket and hope it fits kind of thing. Absolutely true. I would just, you know, wonder in the same spirit with you this. Can you inherit wisdom? My response to that would be, on the surface, you know, as a question you'd, almost involuntarily you'd say well I'd hope so because what else is it but I I would submit to you probably the answer is no that you cannot inherit wisdom because it's in the nature of wisdom to be so site-specific so time-sensitive so on on the shelf for a very brief period that it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition wisdom that that wisdom might be inherently indigenous I don't mean first peoples of the North American yeah. indigenous. Yeah. I mean, in the sense of the word, as being place and time specific. That's what wisdom mm. could be understood to be a servant of its time, a child of its time. Mm. What can you inherit? Prejudice. You can inherit prejudice with the breast milk. You can inherit so thoroughly. And it's such a sur- surreptitious proposition, inheriting prejudice, that I've never heard a couple of bigots sitting around saying, I don't know about you, Hank, but I I feel like I'm a backsliding on my prejudice. I've, I I got to work because I'm I'm just not on it anymore. You know, I'm softening around. I've never heard anything like it. Why? Because it is in the nature of most prejudices to appear to be inevitable and self-evident to their practitioners. They never wonder about them. Mm. All the prejudices are legitimized by the circumstances. They look at the people that they find reprehensible and they identify the reprehensible parts of them and then describe their prejudice as an inevitable response and a legitimate response. You know how it works. That's what you, That's the nature of inheritance. So I would suggest something like this. The idea that there's such a thing as wisdom that must be pursued and and, and really labored over, we can inherit that. Mm. But the content, the working... The workings of it yeah the nuances of it we can't inherit that that's when it becomes I mean the word prejudice literally means to claim to know beforehand and that's what inheriting wisdom as a content thing seems to me to be it's prejudicial in its nature so when I made that observation about people are prevailed upon by the examples that precede them and that when they go to their times of real emotional scarcity and and travail, they open the little medicine bag of what could be, and mostly what's in there is what they saw mm. before now. I'm just telling you what I saw, that's, that's how I saw it happen. Yeah. Of course there's exceptions to that. But generally speaking, I would prevail upon dying people in the following way. Listen, I'm not gonna try to sell you dying well As on the basis of enlightened self-interest because I don't know how I'm going to convince you that it would be any good for you at all because the whole time frame is too short and we'll never know. So how about this? How about you die well where you're not involved on the receiving end at all? How about you imagine all the consequences of how you die is what you're entrusting with the people that you claim to love and hold dear and have respect for including the wider world beyond your family. about that and that you're in the memory making business now Mm. you see you're not in the ego affirmation business right and all the memories that people will have that they will bring to their dying will include this and since you can't be there physically and demonstrably i'm promising you that you will be there by inference you see Mm -hmm. so how do you want to accompany the people that you brought into the world, when it's their turn to die, when hopefully you don't get to be there physically. How? By the dying that you trust to them. Right. That's how. That's what I meant by it ebbs beyond um, how it works out for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on the matter of euthanasia, which I know is a contentious thing. And I'm, I'm simply saying that the notion that there is no merit in suffering i know there's gradations i saw it more than you probably have saw okay I'm, this does not come from being desensitized but i'm the case the plea i'm making is that that suffering is part of having been born with a body and with sentience you know and it is not your right
1: not to suffer but you don't go to the dentist and refuse Novocaine.
0: I, I, don't, I don't know that you can extend the example though and c- call euthanasia Novocaine, you see. Let's use the word anesthetic and let's look at what the word actually means and this might help. So we have the prefix which is the negating prefix and the Latinic root word aesthetic, things pertaining to beauty and you reunite the word and what does an anesthetic actually do in its function? Hmm. It disables you where beauty is concerned, mm. where heightened sensitivity oh, is concerned. Thing. That's yeah. what the word is actually telling us it does. Right. And of all the words they could use to describe being desensitized to the, to the fangs of agony, right of all the words to be disabled where beauty is concerned d- it 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 confesses more than it means to you
1: <laughs> know what i'm saying yeah. yeah yeah i often my wife is a psychiatrist a mm. uh, renegade psychiatrist ah. and somewhat like you i take it <laughs> uh in recovery from being a mental health practitioner um and she she has often talked about how she can't give people pills anymore because they don't, people don't realize that when you take an antidepressant, it also takes away the highs. It takes the highs and the lows and just leaves you numb in the center. And that's why a lot of patients, you know, they go off their meds, um, including antipsychotics. They know that know that takes away life, you know? Um, Okay, one more question, and then and then I want to move on to your your more recent book okay. and, and your concerns. Sure. Um, and and I'm just you know one thing that's beautiful about this podcast is I I get to indulge my selfish curiosities and hope that the listeners share some of them. Mm. Um, but one thing I think about a lot um, in in this area is how we define death physically. Mm-hmm. How do you feel? Is it a death when someone has, um, let's say, Alzheimer's to the point where they don't recognize anyone in their life? Is that person alive? Man, how, how would I know? But but
0: if we if we don't stop there with how do I know? Maybe your experience is worth something, you know. Without exercising authority as a result of it. Yeah, alive. There's a corporeal reality to life, right? A metabolic reality. As long as the thing is still thumping away in your chest cavity, then then there's certainly an an aliveness to you. But you know, this question comes from this question about quality, doesn't it? Really. This is the language today, right? And the irony is we're demeaning quantity of life in favor of quality at exactly the same time that we're extending everybody's lifespan which means that we're working out a system whereby the law of diminishing returns is inevitable. That the longer you exercise the domain over this physical uh, um, chassis, and the longer you insist on having one, the less likely it's going to be that you're going to enjoy what you used to mean by quality of anything, which means you're going to die longer. Mm. And that's what palliative care is. It's guaranteeing that your death will be longer so we have a longer lifespan than we've ever had but we don't evenly distribute the longness across the lifespan it's all tacked on the end that's what you're getting Mm. you know as a as a good consumer of of uh, life enhancement strategies you're going to get more demise yeah and is there anything in your pre-morbid life that enabled you to come to your demise to the slow grind of your demise with anything like grace with anything like candor or willingness or chops or anything not expertise just the ability to ride it you know and to give it its due I don't see any sign that these two things are together at all so I'm, I'm routinely asked what you know a lot of the stuff you're talking about is very top heavy in the consideration department and what if you're talking about uh, all neurodegenerative diseases, you know. What good is this? any of this for them? And the only answer I can give is, look, for the person that you're talking about, the Parkinson's person, so on, Alzheimer's, probably none. You feel better now? Probably none. You win. Don't forget everybody else, though, because those are the ones I'm thinking about. Mm. And yeah, there's such a thing as too late. And grown-ups know there's such a thing as too late. And the most skilled grown-ups govern themselves accordingly. And then when too late comes to call, you say, ah, like the Dalai Lama says about the Chinese, it's, ah, my friend, the enemy, mm-hmm. you know, my constant companion. Here you are announcing yourself yet again, but with a little more vividness than as usual, right? So, So how do you live with the inability of one of your fellows to live by virtue of these diseases? And the answer is, well, this is one of your exercises of your humanity. You know? And it's nothing that you'd ever go looking for. But I don't know that we can be that authoritative about what, how it is for the person inside the Alzheimer's cage. I don't know, really. It doesn't look that there's much consequence, you know? Yeah. But how we are with Alzheimer's, to my mind, is the, more, is the question that asks more of more of us. Because the Alzheimer's won't be a constant for all of us, thankfully, hopefully. Uh, and it's a, ma- a minority proposition. But how do you live with Alzheimer's? That's a majority question. Right? And you don't have to have a personal experience to, to hold yourself to the standard of, so is quality the whole thing? Mm-hmm. Firing an all cylinders as long as you can, that's the measure. You know, how we are with our most frail among us is how
1: civilized we can manage to be, it seems to me. Civilized is a very loaded term Indeed. for me, let me tell you. Um, maybe human then. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll let it slide and not go off into a rant there. But uh, to me, this question gets into identity, uh, maybe more than quality. And, you know, when you are no longer Stephen... Yeah. Even in your own mind, mm-hmm. then does Stephen live? Um, which then raises interesting questions about how we, as we age, we um, incorporate our earlier selves and sort of accumulate these identities that right. we've been over the years. Right. Each one has died in a way, and yet it lives on within us as. I don't know, as memories or as debris, debris, <laughs> accumulated psychological debris and oh. scars and so on. Um, what What is it? You know, when I started my PhD research, the first thing I was researching for my dissertation, I spent about a year doing it, uh, was about, I, I wanted to understand what it was about <clears throat> some oncologists and intensive care physicians people who were facing the death of their patients on a constant basis. What personality structures would predict burnout mm-hmm. versus people who could do that f- throughout their careers? Mm. And so I was working with oncologists. Otherwise
0: known as burnout. Yeah. Who could do it their oh, entire oh, careers.
1: So, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Dead to <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people remain open to it somehow and, and are able to incorporate or... or and I did that for about a year um, before I determined that I, whatever personality factors I was looking for, I didn't have them. And I didn't want to spend my life being an expert on this and going to conferences, oncology conferences. And, right. uh, and then I dropped it all and studied sex in prehistory instead. And the rest is history or prehistory. Um, but I'm, I'm interested. What is it about you? that enables you to sit in these spaces with people and not be destroyed by it.
2: Look for my brother. Gone to where the rain falls. Aladonia River, far away, still water. Laying over still water. Lay my body down. Still water. Laying over. On
1: your river we were we were just talking about how nurses often say that uh, hearing is the last thing to go, yes, and you were and, saying and, that's and, and keep the nattering at them. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I guess they don't say natter, but often that's what it becomes. And um why? Why natter at them? Well, because you're maintaining a connection. But isn't this exactly the thing that must be dissolved? Maintaining the connection. Mm. When does anybody get to say, you know, the more connected they are to us, the harder it is to die? It's like keeping your strength up. Mm. Keeping your strength up makes the whole thing harder than it needs to be. So, So your dying dies at the same rate as your pancreas and your big toe dies. Okay. But you have, a, you have a kind of, they often call it sixth sense or something of that kind. Or it's the, it's the cumulative consequence of all your other sensoria, maybe. That's what it is. And you've nursed the sixth one along not very well because you've relied heavily on the five. Or the four if you're diminishing. But the sixth one gives you the ability to, to be deeply um, on the receiving end of the presence of other people even at some considerable distance. Now you're dying. And this, this ability, this other sense, is in its ascent, largely because the other ones are falling away. Mm. And your, your proneness to the presence of others is acute. And the, the, the best parallel I've been able to give is you're on a subway, okay? And you don't realize you've fallen asleep in the subway, okay? And you suddenly wake up for whatever reason, and you're in an absolutely raw adrenal panic for about a second as you, you, you're you sending out the troops out to the perfect, where are we? Do they speak English here? Are we going to be okay? You know, that kind of thing. And then you try to assume the position of, oh, it's nothing, and you wipe the drool away from the side of your mouth, you know. Well, that's what it's like when people are talking to you and touching you, and you're trying to get out of here. Mm. And every one of these things draws your attention away from your fundamental labors. And I wouldn't be surprised that somewhere in your your longing to, to have the opportunity to be alone is some inherent awareness that that's, it's enormously problematic to be attended to. Mm. And people should be keeping an extraordinary distance from you. And the quality of their attention should be v- most benign, yeah. most quieting. And in this sense... You know, the well-accomplished Buddhists have got this part of things, I would say, well in hand. You know, let the let the monk do the praying, right? No more talking. Maybe not in the room, probably not. And your job is to make yourself obsolete in the life of the dying person. Mm. And it's proper that they stop looking to you and begin to look through you. That's what you'd want for them, kind of thing.
1: You You have such a beautiful way of articulating things is has yeah. that come to you in in your experience in this realm or have you always have words flown <laughs> through flow through your head oh, yeah, this always
0: way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah i'm brilliant at home too especially <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i met wade davis one a compatriot sure. of yours sure. uh, a couple of years ago and had him on the podcast and i i embarrassed myself because after Two minutes, I I started laughing uncontrollably because he speaks the way he writes. Ah. He speaks in these beautiful paragraphs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I I you know had to explain to him why I was laughing. <laughs> he wasn't yeah. saying anything particularly hilarious, yeah. but well, I suspect but, maybe he had a, an affliction similar to my
0: own, uh, which is to say, I was I think I was born uh, I was read to in the womb, perhaps yeah. certainly shortly thereafter, mm. and. Something happened, which is alchemical and more or less of a circuitry uh, importance to me. And it's this, I can't see except... In a story-driven way. Mm. That's the way everything occurs to me. It doesn't mm. occur to me as ideas or concepts or yeah. hypotheses, uh, n- notions, opinions, attitudes. Right. I'm not saying none of them are there. It's They're all there.
1: Synesthesia almost. Yeah. yeah. It's,
0: there's something about the arc of a story, mm. you know, that is so recognizable to the human psyche that the human psyche in its, in its more comforted moments doesn't make a distinction. They could say, oh, there I am. Mm. Or, or I'm being thought by that story now. I'm being told by that thing. We, we know each other in some, you know, primordial fashion. And it's always been that way to me, I suppose. Mm. So then the secondary or the corollary consequence is if you're granted, you know, the ability to hear, which is a, not a given, and it's connected to other things, then when stuff comes out of your mouth the storyness is what persists not the particulars of a given story right but the the arc of the thing and and this is the sound I hear it's um there's no argument in a story and there's no story in an argument and this is why your exposure to the news of the day leaves you so um both um unnerved in a in an awful way and without any promise or sense of capacity and some other part of you longing for a well-told something mm. that's not contending that's not demanding from you something that's just quietly testifying without asking you what you think or asking you to vote mm. that's what story seems to be and i think i had that all along and it's god is still with me and it's um, it's a very demanding deity in my life but it's uh, I welcome it you know. Yeah. yeah.
1: Does does that relate to the question I asked you before we we took our our pee break there about what it is in you that allows you to swim in these waters without going under yourself? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say that I don't go under. And uh, personal survival
0: is not a um, prerequisite for me. Of any capacity to stand and deliver when the time comes. I'm not, and there's nothing heroic in what I'm about to say, but I, I'm not, the calculations for me don't seem to be based on what's working for me, or am I going to be okay on the other end of anything, or, or what. So, I'm not trying to be okay at the end, and I'm not actually that persuaded about this notion of a personal self, which is... <laughs> Long, lots to talk about there, but yeah. but I'm, it's just it's not a compelling. There's not a lot of strong evidence that there is such a thing. The melt, first of all, the basic non-existence of such a thing coming in, and the meltdown going out. It's like an allegation, mm-hmm. the thing in between called the self, you know. And I mean, there's something discreet, let's call it, but not particular. I mean, if we were that particular what are you and I doing right now? How could we ever reach over the chasm of our otherness? You know, We would have to surrender most of what makes us ourselves in order to be legible to each other. Whereas I'm going the other way. I'm saying we become most legible, not by surrendering the, the Himalayas of our you know, personality, but by observing, no, obliging our personality even to get in line With the obligation to be communicable Mm. to each other and be uh, show up in each other's lives in some fashion you know as if as if it matters that you do and i think the self to the degree to which it serves that is a useful conceit to have but but beyond that i don't find it all that useful it's not really something that i feel an obligation to preserve or to be okay so when i got into the death trade which i didn't know existed as i said to you i wasn't trying to come out the other side every day as a guy who could leave the work at work, I don't think I ever did, and eventually it became my understanding of why I was born. I was born in part to be to do this because I could do it almost immediately, not to anybody's satisfaction, I should say, <laughs> not inside the business but I, but I yeah. intuitively, I had a sensibility yeah. that was friendly to what this was asking of me, right, and then what it asked of me quickly morphed into not what could I do for this person but what obligation did I have to a fellow human being what did they deserve from me not what could I do what did they deserve and whatever my capacities were were to serve that so uh, it's not a really personality driven proposition any more than being an elder is a consequence of your personality you know it strikes me now, I'm 64, so I can see elderhood from here, the the proposition of it at least. And what struck me is recently that, that there's no MMPI test for elder because I don't think it's a personality wrinkle. I don't think it's a, it's not like the, everybody becomes George Burns, wouldn't that be great? I don't think it'd be great, but <laughs> me but,
1: either. No. <laughs> Nor Bob Hope. Okay, or any
0: or, or anybody. You know, they're they're off the hook from yeah. being an exemplar of any of that stuff. Yeah. No, I mean that that as I said earlier, but in a different context, that elderhood strikes me as a kind of a child of its time, not its leader, but where the, the, the times are most palpable. That's the elder function. So I'm, I'm going to give you a line that occurred to me as I've written that last book, which I'm, I am, I'm absolutely proud of. Uh, What's it called, the book? The book's called uh, Come of Age, mm. uh, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And the time of trouble I'm describing is not getting older. It's now. It's yeah. these days. Yeah. yeah. It's not personal. But the line went something like this as I tried to imagine in a sentence what the function of elderhood might be. And this is what they told me. To write down, um, elders call still water to rise when the people have forgotten their thirst. I could elaborate, but that—that's kind of what I mean. That's how it's appeared to me that an elder's fundamental responsibility is to the times, where the times become most recognizable in how they carry themselves. So they're not an antidote. They're an an animated incarnation of the, the manias. I'm not saying they're a practitioner of the manias. I'm saying they're a witness to them. Mm. And they become most palpable, those manias, in the willingness of the elder to be overrun by the heartbreak of the times that we find ourselves in. So imagine asking yourself, still water means what it means would appear to be no trouble or it might mean something more turgid and kind of beowulf mm. like that underneath those still waters you know, it's not what you're shadows there's not more still water under still water mm. could be that so imagine calling these still waters to some kind of deeply engaged um troubledness when when the people have forgotten to be thirsty when they're not clamoring after you to do it, that your 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 work becomes self-appointed, as long as your personality is nowhere to be found in the appointment. You see, that you you volunteer in a kind of Three Stooges way. You know the famous lineup. They're looking for volunteers for dangerous work. You know, and the guy's marching back. Men, it's going to be really tough. And and everybody who's in the know steps back. and The Three Stooges don't move. The guy turns around. He says. Three, uh, you're very brave to... That's it, it seems mm. to me. It's something like that. And to call still waters to rise when the people have forgotten their thirst. Forgetting your thirst on the surface of it looks like mercy itself. That if you're thirsty and you've forgotten your thirst, you're not thirsting anymore. And there should be some deliverance in but
1: that. But you're still dying of thirst.
0: Well, you still, you still... Yeah. And what about the water? What if the real question is not your thirst... But the waters, though, mm. the waters, the, the, the troubled waters of now, that that's what you're there to serve, you know, that the world recognizes in your humanity a fellow worker. Let's put it that way. So I think elders fundamentally are a kind of um, eruption of, of humanity into a time that has decided that humanity is a sucker's game, you know, there's too much frailty in it. And that it's only about who's going to win and who's going to prevail and who gets heard. And whose 15 seconds are these 15 seconds kind of thing.
1: This ties into a question I wanted to ask you earlier when I was asking you, what is it about you that enables you to do this work and your personality structure or whatever? And I was thinking, I was wondering if you live in a state of perpetual brokenheartedness. yes yeah and then i was as you were speaking now about elderhood i was reflecting on my own experience getting older i'm 56 now and it occurred to me that beyond a certain age if you're not broken hearted you're not paying attention
0: <laughs> yeah just like it's very hard to make the case to a 12 year old and that they should outgrow their adhd because it makes sense to pay attention Mm. I mean, good luck trying to make that case. I'm not sure you can, you know. The rate of change that's boiling around us now is so implacable that it's making two basic human skills irrelevant to the proceedings. And the first one is in the younger generation, their capacity to apply themselves, you know, without a lot of evidence that that it's important to do so. Remember they used to argue all the time when you're in school, what use is studying history? What am I supposed to do? This blah blah blah. How can it turn into a job? Well, that's what it sounds that's why you don't take direction on learning from a twelve year old. (laughs) You just don't do it because what do they know about these things? So, but you hope somewhere in there the capacity to give a shit can be engaged, Mm. young. Mm. And it's rewarded without being placated. Mm -hmm. Right? That the real reward system is It counts to give a shit, man. And it's your obligation. It's not your payday. It's your obligation as a 12-year-old to learn how to care. Yeah. Okay. The other end of the spectrum, you know, old people now, greater and greater incidents of neurodegenerative diseases. That's the way it appears. So at the rate of change is making individual human memory irrelevant, virtually obsolete. Mm-hmm you got more devices to compensate for the gaps mm. in your capacity to remember. Yeah. And all you have to do is remember the device now. Yeah. You don't have to
1: remember anything it replaces. Just your password. That's all you need.
0: Yeah, or remember that somebody knows your password. <laughs> whatever it is. Whatever the fail-safe thing is, right? Yeah, yeah. Honey, remember this, would you? <laughs> yeah. Kind of thing. So, look, individual human memory is being eclipsed at the same time that older people's capacity to remember is neurologically mm. being diminished. Do you think there's a cause and effect between these two things? Someday people are going to recognize that the panting after innovation and change is having consequence at the, at the ends of the emotional and temporal spectrum for humans. Mm. And, it's, and it's hitting the youngest and the oldest first. They're the sentinel species now. If you want to look at what's really going on, attend to what afflicts them. And the middle generation is blithely proceeding as if they're free of the first one. And if they just get it right, the second one will never ensue. See, but but when your personal memory is irrelevant, play all the Scrabble you want. You're not going to keep that stuff at bay because there's no reward system for remembering. So, heartbrokenness is your memory completely engaged, Mm. it's not overwhelmed, Mm. it's engaged. The only way you can be heartbroken is to retain a memory of a time when it wasn't quite like this. And you know this is shit's not inevitable. Yeah. And you're roused by that, you see. And your heartbrokenness is an animating force of enormous consequence that doesn't seek to eclipse itself. Real heartbrokenness is not trying not to be heartbroken. It's recognizing the sorrow that I told you about at the beginning of when we started talking. Those guys sitting there, they had no capacity for sadness. And I'm afraid that this is what's coming, you know, at a kind of cultural scale, that the madness is so thick that, that what merit is there in being sorrowed by it? It becomes a rhetorical question now. So many, many young people come mysteriously to stuff that I do and I've often wondered why and the thing that struck me is maybe it's a thin thread but maybe this is why because they've all been given up but given up on on the world in some fashion but certainly on older people and almost involuntarily they still seem to be looking for a handful of older people that they can be wrong about in that regard and maybe that's why they come and so my obligation, among others, is to try to be one of the people they could be wrong about and risk it, risk being wrong about that it's pointless, and that everybody's in it for their own spiritual payday, etc. and that the world they're receiving from people of my generation is um, inevitable. It's not inevitable. I passed a road sign the other day, though I've seen it a million times, but it never hit me like it did. I, it went by and it said, be prepared to stop. <laughs> and I thought, son of a bitch. Yeah. That's so true. I'm
1: always prepared to stop, man. <laughs> yeah. Be prepared to stop. Yeah. I, I get the same thing when I fill out some form online and the button says submit. <laughs> I don't want to submit. <laughs> Fuck that um this question of heartbrokenness yeah. reminds me of a line i read in uh, i think it was uh, trung Chuyam trungpa mm-hmm. years ago yeah a long time ago um and it was something about how westerners misunderstand the notion of enlightenment to mean that one is constantly happy mm-hmm. and he said that's totally wrong that Enlightenment as understood in his school of Tibetan Buddhism is when you reach the state of awareness that no matter how happy you are you're surrounded by suffering of others and no matter how much you are suffering you never forget the beauty of the world and he said there's this beautiful line he said i think it was life is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world mm-hmm that balance that's enlightenment and
0: sorrowing participation in the joys of the world yeah exactly yeah, m- m- means you're not going to get invited to many parties <laughs> but the ones that'll have you probably pretty good <laughs> they're the
1: best parties I think so exactly yeah. listen I'm going to let you go I know you uh, you're very busy you're on tour mm-hmm. and um, gig tonight yeah gig, gig tonight yeah. gigs last night gigs the night after mm-hmm. uh, I really appreciate your time and the chance to hang out you know, real questions,
0: they're like hen's teeth these days. A real question that doesn't beg an answer and doesn't argue mm-hmm. for something else. It's really rare. It's been a real privilege. I'm glad I drove up. Thanks. He went.
3: He said, Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to what's the difference if you turn away I'm going to die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're going to say a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day, your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much, a little music and a soft touch, why don't you let it out to play, your heart is in a birdcage, you singing It's a big deal if you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm going to take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.